It's hard to believe, but it's over seven years since the United Kingdom, collectively by national referendum, decided upon a course of action commonly known as Brexit, in which we voted to leave the European Union. If you can remember back to that time, running up to the election. To, to take back control, and it was put to us most simply. And I'll say no more about that. In Isaiah, 20, in Isaiah 45, rather, I would like to direct your attention to verses 4 and 5. The Lord speaks to one who he describes as his anointed, to Cyrus in verse 1, and then in verse 4, he says this to Cyrus, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. If it was a surprise for any citizen of the United Kingdom to learn that they were being governed by people whom they did not know, whom no citizen of the UK had ever voted for, how much of a shock do you think it would have been for Cyrus to realize that he, the ruler of the Persian Empire, was being governed by one whom he did not know? Because that is exactly what we see in these verses. A man who, to all appearances, was utterly sovereign over his empire, completely in control. No one could forbid Cyrus from doing anything. He was in charge, but God says to him in verses 4 and 5, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. We are presented with the true sovereign. Far above every principality and power, every nation, every king, every government, here is one who is utterly and eternally sovereign in all affairs. A quotation I found most helpful, perhaps you'll like to keep this in mind the next time politics frustrates you, which will be probably tomorrow. In all the revolutions of states and kingdoms, the sudden falls of the great and strong and the surprising advancements of the weak and obscure, God is designing the good of his church. Isn't that what God said to Cyrus in verse 4? For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, Cyrus, I've put you where you are and I've given you what you have for the sake of my people, for the good of my church. 
Here is the absolute sovereign. The sovereign God, men and women, as we continue through this passage, as we read it together carefully, this sovereignty is repeated. His sovereignty is re-emphasized time after time, particularly with the words, I am the Lord and there is none else. And then when we come to verse 22, we have God addressing not just one emperor thousands of years ago. We have God not just addressing one nation, but God addressing all people. Because God says in verse 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. You may be a willing subject of this nation. You may be an obedient citizen, and if you're a Christian, you should be. But regardless of who else you obey in this life, there is one whom we all will obey. One who claims over our lives absolute sovereignty and he issues a command to us here. It is an invitation, but it is also a command. It's imperative. For God says, look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Men and women, you will only be saved if you look to Christ. In this verse, there is an exclusive claim. It says at the end of the verse, for I am God and there is none else. These words, I, I say, ought to make all of us sit up and listen. These words ought to make us realize that we must deal with God. That we can't ignore Him. That we can't be neutral. But that we must deal with him. For he is absolutely sovereign. And just as he ruled over Cyrus the Great. As we noted. Look at verse 13. He says of Cyrus. I have raised him up in righteousness. And will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. And he shall let go my captives. Not for price nor reward. Do you think that if God could do as he pleased with Cyrus. That you're somehow beyond his power. You're sadly mistaken. You're in the hand of God. The absolute sovereign and God commands you this evening, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. An exclusive claim. And God does not just make this claim, but we can find proof in this passage to support this claim. We'll do so in four ways. The first one is that it's proven by creation. Look with me at verse 18, please. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens... God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Where we read there, he created it not in vain. We're reading a word that refers to a scene of desolation. I don't, want, I don't know what you would picture in your minds if I told you to imagine a desolate place, perhaps a desert, perhaps a I can't can't remember the word, a, a doomsday landscape. But the Lord says here that he created it, meaning all creation, the heaven and earth, not in vain. Initially, yes, Genesis 2 and verse 1, it says the earth was without form. And that's the same Hebrew word as is here translated, vain, featureless, formless. But it says he formed it to be inhabited. God did not create the earth formless and featureless and barren to leave it in that state, but he continued to mold what he had brought into existence out of nothing in order that it would be inhabited. And that, of course, brings us to the soul of man, the pinnacle of God's creation. 
You are the work of the perfectly intelligent designer. The soul that is in your body, that inhabits the body formed of the dust of the ground, was put there by God, it says in Genesis 2 and verse 7, and God breathed into his nostrils, Adam's nostrils, the father of us all, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Men and women, your soul is made in God's image with a conscience, a conscience that is a moral witness, the law of God written on your heart, telling you what is right and what is wrong. And this proves to us that God is the ultimate sovereign. For it is He that has made us, and not we ourselves. He refers to His creation. He also refers, secondly, to prove this exclusive claim in verse 19 to His revelation. Verse 19 says, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. That word secret could also be translated as a covering, something that is disguised. You'll find it translated in that way in Job 24, 15. The eye also of the adulterer waiteth for the twilight, saying, no eye shall see me, and disguiseth his face. That is the total contrast to how God speaks to men and women. The Lord says, Isaiah 45, 19, I have not spoken in secret. I have disguised nothing about any of my revelation. It's all open. It's all before you. Read it. Understand it. God has not spoken in secret. A wonderful illustration for the openness and the the transparency of God's revelation to man is how the, the law of God was received there at Sinai. On the mountain, in Exodus 19, we read that there was thunder and lightning, that the voice of the trumpet was heard. It says, exceeding loud, and I'll quote from that passage, Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And it was on the top of the mountain, not in a cave, not in a corner, but on the top of the mountain that God met with Moses and gave him the law. As all of Israel encamped around the mountain looked at this fearful sight and could see God is speaking. God is making his will known for our nation. Exodus 24, 17, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. What an image. How God has not spoken in secret. And this stands in complete contrast. There are many examples, but the one that I've chosen to mention to you this evening is the claimed revelation of the Church of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons, the way God speaks and God has given his revelation is a total contrast to how they claim to have received their revelation. A man called Joseph Smith was apparently summoned by an angel in 1823, leading him to a hillside near his home in New York, where he found buried in the ground a stone box. And inside the stone box were what he described as golden plates, the golden plates had writing on them that he described as being in the language of Reformed Egyptian, which no one recognizes as an actual language. 
Smith later translated these plates, the words on them, while looking through transparent stones, and that gave rise eventually to what now is known and is offered to anyone who wants it on Facebook, especially lately in Northern Ireland, as the Book of Mormon. In total, there were 11 men who would later give testimony to having actually seen, even seen, the plates, although they couldn't read them because it was in Reformed Egyptian. The first three men later fell out with Smith. The latter eight were all members of two very loyal families to the group, but no one else ever saw these golden plates. No one else was given the opportunity to examine them because, of course, Joseph Smith had to return them to the angel. That's not speaking openly. That is speaking in secret. That is highly suspicious, would you not think? But that's not how God speaks. We've mentioned Mount Sinai. How about the Lord Jesus Christ? In John 18, verses 19 and 20, we read, The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I speak openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Christians should have nothing to hide about what the Bible says. The Lord Jesus had nothing to hide. God's word has nothing to hide. God has not spoken in secret. And his open and transparent revelation proves that he is the absolute sovereign because no one can disprove this book. No one can erase this book. It is the living word of God. It lives and abides forever. God's claim of sovereignty is proven by his revelation. Think of what the Lord Jesus would then go on to do after he said, in secret have I said nothing. His enemies would accuse him. They would falsely try him. They would find him to be innocent. Then later they would crucify him. And of course, he was confirmed to be dead. But three days later, he rose. He rose from the grave and later appeared before hundreds of witnesses. Again, very open, not in secret. He he sent his apostles across the world preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And today there are thousands of manuscripts of this book in recognized languages which have been poured over and studied by believers and by critics alike. And the Bible still stands. As it says in this passage, Isaiah 45, 19, I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Aren't you glad, Christian, that your faith does not rest upon a disputed, shady story like Joseph Smith and the Golden Plates? You must be. I certainly am. That my faith is leaning on the word, the written word of God. This proof continues in this passage. It's not only by revelation, it's also proven by history. One of the great apologetic arguments for the accuracy of Scripture and the reality of the life of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. And interestingly, Isaiah's prophetic ministry took place between the years 750 and 680 BC approximately. 750 to 680. But what Isaiah is foretelling here is how God would use Cyrus to bring the people of Judah back from a captivity that had not yet taken place. And that return would not begin until 538 BC, another 140 years after Isaiah's ministry ended. 
And historical records, including the book of Haggai that we read this morning, now tell us that that captivity happened and the return happened and the prophecy was fulfilled because God used Cyrus to benevolently allow the Jews, the Jews to, to return home. God appeals to the council of history and it, it says in verse 21, Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. It's proven by history. Those people who set dates for the return of the Lord and then get it wrong and then set another date, they're not, they're not walking according to truth. God's claim of sovereignty is proven by history. It's also finally, in this first thought, proven by God's people. Because he says in verse 19, I, have, I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. The Bible invites us in another place to seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. Now have any of you Christians ever sought the Lord and not found mercy? Of course not. He answered your prayer for salvation. When you cried out to him, none of us have ever sought the Lord in vain. None of us are ever called to do labor for Jesus Christ, which is in vain. It tells us so in the scriptures. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God proves his absolute sovereignty by his protection his direction over all our lives. There's no disputing it. There is no argument with this claim. I am God and there is none else. We also find in this verse an extensive call where we find in verse 22, all the ends of the earth are addressed by this invitation. This is an interesting phrase. It's found 27 times in the Old Testament. Once quoted in the New Testament, it speaks of extremities. God's speaking here to the most remote and isolated regions of the earth. And therefore, the call includes you. I know you live in a nation that is so blessed with gospel preaching to you. This is the center of the world. It's no extremity. God includes you in this invitation. You, sinner, and Corinne. Look unto me and be ye saved. The one God, the sovereign God, he knows that you are here now. He knows your every thought. And he issues this call, which includes you. You'll notice in this passage, this call is issued in all ages. Who hath told it from that time? Who hath declared this from ancient Time. God has always had his people and he always will. God will continue to work and to save and to redeem sinners for this is what he has been doing since man fell and what he will do until Christ comes again. And the salvation of God's people in the past speaks to us now. As time continues, the testimony of God's grace to sinners only multiplies the strength of the argument of the, 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 the proof that God is the sovereign because of all whom he has saved only gets stronger. Ephesians 2 verses 5 and 7. Even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ. 
by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. It's issued in all ages, this extensive call. It's also issued to all nations. And that's so clear in the text because it's issued to all the ends of the earth. It doesn't matter who you are. God's church is so much bigger than us here. Praise his name. That it's from every nation and every tribe and every tongue and kindred. It's issued to every nation, and you know it is the responsibility of the church to be the messenger to every nation. I've had several conversations recently with Christian friends about the need for preachers and for missionaries, for people who are willing to go. There may be some in this meeting in whose hearts God has been working as he has been in mine and as yet that full will is not yet to be revealed. But there may be some here who feel a compulsion. Perhaps it comes to you in times like a a sinking feeling like, oh, I have to do this. Maybe God is calling you. Look around you. Look at all the vacant churches. Look at the nations. How are they going to know? Only if one is sent. And so if God is speaking to you concerning the ministry of the word of God, do not close your ears. Do not be disobedient to the heavenly vision. Listen to him. Pray, people of God, that the Lord will raise up more laborers. The need only becomes greater as time goes on, not just in our denomination, certainly there, but everywhere. That there would be an extensive call issued and that we would be used by God to issue it. Continuing in this verse, we find thirdly, there is an explicit command and it is so clear and so powerful. Look unto me. How is it? That a person can be saved. Look unto me. Don't look to your idols anymore. They've done nothing for you. They're a construct. They're imaginary. They're non-existent. They're parlous. Look away from your false gods. Verse 20. That set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Perhaps this is not something you've ever done. But let me tell you, if you're unsaved, you do worship idols. It may be the idol of self. It may be someone else you love. It may be your favorite team. It might be your job, your money. I don't know, but you've got some. And you need to look away from all of those things. And you need to look to the Savior of sinners. Because the sovereign God tells you so. You don't need any other reason. You need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one, as we thought about creation, the one who is the creator. It says in John 1 and verse 3, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The one who not only created all things, but the one who is the prophet and has issued all of the revelation of God, for he is the word. 
the eternal word, the expression of God. He is, of course, the Redeemer. Those wonderful verses in Romans in chapter 3. Let me read a few of them to you. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Looking to Christ means looking by faith. It means that you look with total dependence, that you trust in the Lord Jesus, that He is who He claims to be, that He is the only Savior, and that when you trust in Him, you will be healed from your sin, that your sins will be taken away, that you will be brought into fellowship with Him and brought into the family of God, and as it says in Romans 3, verse 25, that you will be justified, declared righteous, that God will look at you as a judge looks at a prisoner on trial, and brings down the hammer and accepts him and says, you're free from the, from the penalty of the law because he has paid it for you. You're free from the curse. You're free from eternal punishment because he took the punishment that was yours. So look to Jesus Christ, an explicit command. It is only those who are looking to Christ and are in Christ that will be accepted by God and will experience what we think of Fourthly and finally this evening, a wonderful reality for the child of God, an experience of change. Because the verse says, look unto me and be ye saved. An experience of change. We certainly are creatures who are subject to change. But our problem is that though we change in countless different ways, and I need to be careful how I might enumerate those ways in which we change that we don't like and that we try to do something about. But the problem is that the one way in which we really need to change, we cannot do anything about that. We have a sinful heart that impacts everything we do and all that we are. But apart from the grace of God, we will remain sinners. And that heart will not be changed. But here's the way to have it changed. Look unto God. Look unto Christ and be ye saved. Sinner, I'm sure you felt at times in your life that you needed to change, that you were fed up with your failures, that you were fed up with the grip that sin had on you, that you were tired of the same old, the same old patterns of sin and of bondage. If you would be broken free from those chains, just look to Christ. You'll be changed. God will give you a new heart. He'll put new life in you. It's be, it'd be like the dry bones in Ezekiel. He'll put flesh on bones and he'll breathe life into those bodies and you'll stand up and walk and go about praising God. When we are saved, when we experience this real and this wonderful change, we are Saved, first of all, from sin. We're saved from idolatry, saved from false religion because we worship the one true and the one living God. Second Corinthians 3 and verse 18. We all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Believer, have you been changed today? 
Have you known a renewing today? This is the will of God. Your sanctification, the renewing of your mind. And it is not just for the Christian to be changed once, to be justified, to have that declaration made, to enter into the the, the family of God, but it's for us to be continually changed and made more and more like our Savior. It never stops. We're not only saved from sin, we're also saved from judgment. Look at verse 23, Isaiah 45, 23. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Not just those who are saved, every knee. The sovereign says every knee will bow to him and he means it. The one true and living God says every tongue shall swear and so they will. And that day will come. Romans 14. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written as I live saith the Lord. Every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. But the joy for the justified is that we are accepted. And our sin is pardoned. And we are saved from judgment. And being saved not only means that. We're saved from judgment that we're also experiencing a change in how we view the judgment day. That it's going to be an amazing day. When the Lord welcomes us in. This makes such a change in how the Christian views death. As time goes on, like Paul, we sense that in us there is a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And that is because, thirdly and finally this evening, this experience of change that is offered to all tonight to look on to Christ and be saved means that you're saved forever. Look at the very end of the passage. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. In Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, it says... For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. There's the sovereign again, the absolute sovereign, the one who rules and defends his people and subdues all things to himself. You have a choice this evening. You have the opportunity to accept Christ, to come to Him, or you can choose your sin. But the day will come when you will bow the knee before Him. You will confess that He is Lord. But for us who are saved, we are saved from sin and we're saved from judgment and we're saved forever. And as we began, as salvation began for us with a look to the crucified one, so it continues and we continue to look. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and it's unto them that look for him. Shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? Are you continually looking to Jesus? Looking for him? Awaiting the dawning of that day when he will bring you home? It is unto them that look for him Shall he appear with that joyful, that joyful sound? 
I don't need to elaborate any further how he will appear for those that never looked for him, who never looked to him. Before God tonight, let me urge you to come to the Lord Jesus, to be healed by his stripes, to know that it is not your tears, not your prayers, not your effort, not your association with this place or these people that will save you. But it's only the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you come to him, you look to him, you will be saved, you will be changed. And you will spend the rest of your life looking for him, expectantly, joyfully, waiting for him to come and take you home. May God bless his word to our hearts. Let's just end in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we confess, O God, that at times we have failed to look up and cast our eyes upon the hills from whence cometh our help. And yet, in spite of this, we are so thankful, Lord, that our salvation is not dependent upon us in any way. It is not dependent upon the strength of our faith or the constancy of our faith, but entirely upon the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus. Lord, that it is He that saves us. Oh Lord, we thank You for a sovereign Savior. We thank You for one who sits in the heavens in His place of residence and laughs at the plans of evil men, who is working all things for the good of His church. And Lord, that You would see fit to look into all the teeming mass of humanity and choose us is beyond our understanding. And we simply return thanks to Thee for Your mercy and for Your grace in our lives. O God, we pray that saving grace would be extended tonight to sinner here in this meeting, that some soul would come to the Lord Jesus and trust in Him, and that they would look by faith to the Lamb of God who said, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Lord, there is none too hard for thee. And so, Lord, save the year-hardened, the, the age-hardened sinner. Save the one who has been rejecting Christ for decades. Break through the walls of resistance. Lord, do it for your own glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.